0: Welcome to the VolRath Feed. This is the show that brings you into that big world of commercial food service. As we always say, it's a fun industry and it's filled with diverse personalities, so there's always something interesting to talk about. I'm your host, Rich Rupp, product trainer and chef at the VolRath Company, and with me as always is our producer, Justin Pearson. Hey Rich, how are things today? It's going really good. And you know, Justin, I I was listening to one of our previous episodes and I just Wanted to make sure I called you out on this episode to say, I know what goes on on these, and I know sometimes we have little glitches and so forth. But you pull <laughs> it together so nice. Every one of our episodes sounds so good. The quality of our, our recording and sound is so good, and I, I think you need to take a bow for that. Oh well, well thank you. You
1: know, it's really good. I, I'm just grateful that we have the technology these days to be able to accomplish this remotely, because if you weren't told that we were in separate. Locations, you might think that we were recording in the same room, right. so yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for that to to be able to to do what we do and and do it with some distance and safely with all the the COVID concerns out there. But uh, well, right. I, I greatly appreciate it, you yeah, know. And then well, when, when we have great guests, though, I mean, it really kind of makes it easy. That's I, I will fact. say, I will say though, that uh, listening to yourself, you become very aware of how you speak and you're like, Oh man, do I really, that that's what I sound like. Ooh. <laughs> but, uh, also yes. it makes you, you very, very aware of your audible pauses. And, and I know I'm just as bad as anybody when it comes to my ums likes, you know, it makes me
0: focus on improving those. Oh, you're right. I listen a lot more to even television, people speaking on, um, interviews and and things like that just because of what you just said how do you sound and the things that you do do you articulate clearly enough do you have too many pauses the ahs and the ums and everything you just said so
1: yeah Yeah. there's there's a difference between having that conversational flow and then sounding a bit too radio-like
0: you know (laughs) (laughs) right well well we've had a we've had a lot of great guests and our shows so far i think have all been really good and um so just wanted to Call you out a little bit for that. You do a good job on our show. Well, much appreciated. You said something about uh, us not being close and in the same room, and you're right. We don't. We are in two separate locations. And this week, we are going even further apart with our guest. And so if I was to say to you, where is one place in the U.S., if you could, if someone said to you, Justin, pick your dream vacation, the place that's absolute paradise, where where might you think that is? Or where would you go? Well, me personally, anywhere
1: in the U.S., I would probably head someplace in the mountains. But there's one place I haven't checked off. I've been to about 46 states and have wow. a few more to go. And the one that, that I absolutely have to check off is Hawaii.
0: That's, that's the one yep. I was getting to here. Our guest yep. today yep. is from Hawaii. Yeah. So we're going to have Taylor Ponte. From the Millhouse Restaurant and Bar located on the island of Maui, Hawaii. Yeah, and just
1: looking at that place, it is absolutely stunning from the photos, and I really would like to visit that place. If if there's one place that we can take the show on the road, that would be it for me. You know, I, I love all of our other guests and all of our locations, but this place—I mean, you talk about paradise—that it's got
0: to be right up on the top of the list there. Right. I mean, we always talk about doing a road trip and we're going to we we've got it's, the approval to go to some for sure yeah. but this one might be a bit harder to uh <laughs> to get the approval on.
1: Yeah, we'll we'll have to do a a little bit better job on convincing. Yeah, I, I believe we have enough leverage to plead a case to go out there <laughs> but
0: yeah, we'll have to be creative about it. Right. Right. Well, the way we got hooked up with Taylor is our VP of marketing, Christina, actually had dinner there when she was in Hawaii and she said it's one of the most beautiful places she's ever seen. The Mill House this restaurant is a restaurant and bar and it's built halfway up on the side of a mountain and I, I think it was an old sugar plantation and and the story of the restaurant is that they've had all these immigrants that have through the years come there and um you know the food is representative of a lot of those different cultures so it's pretty cool it's a it's a great location that a lot of things are grown yet on the grounds of the plantation so it'll be interesting uh, to hear about how Chef Taylor Ponte uses all of those. And and this is just another one of those shows I just have a lot of curiosity about. I think this is going to be a fun one. He seems like, you know, things I've read about him, an uh, interesting guy. And one of the cool things, he's pretty young, and he was just named the 2020 Ipono Chef of the Year. Yeah. As a young 28-year-old person, he uh, won the Chef of the Year. So that's pretty cool. So it'll be interesting to hear his philosophy and how he approaches food and especially having all these things uh, grown locally because Hawaii if you think of it everything that comes to Hawaii or not everything but 90% of the food i understand that's used on the islands is brought in from the mainland so it's it'll be interesting to hear how that locally raised and sustainable things are used in his restaurant
1: absolutely especially when you have so many incredible fruits and vegetables that do come locally stuff that that we can't get here too readily and easily right
0: and Hawaii, Hawaii is such an interesting place because of its location. I mean, there's a lot of things about Hawaii. Again, as I, as I looked at this show and started doing some of the the research on it, things I didn't know, uh, really unique things. I mean, maybe I'm a little embarrassed to say, I didn't realize that in World War II, everyone knows Pearl Harbor, right? And they know the U.S. fleet was mm-hmm. bombed there and so forth. And But I didn't know Hawaii wasn't a state then it wasn't yeah. a state until 1959. Right. Of course correct. Pearl Harbor was 1941. So that I didn't know. That's yeah. just one cool thing I found out. Yeah, it
1: there, there's a lot of other interesting things about Hawaii that that I didn't know that, you know, upon doing some some researching and and of course you know there's there's no snakes in Hawaii and but along with that take everything I say with a grain of salt because this is just through rudimentary googling. So <laughs> yeah. but if you are found smuggling snakes into the state you can face 3 years in jail and a fine upwards of $200,000. They really want to protect their yeah, well, native bird population and well you look at what's going on in Florida and how it's being right. decimated by pythons and boas and whatever,
0: you know it's just mm-hmm. No billboards? Yeah. Billboards are not allowed in Hawaii. I didn't know that either. That's pretty I'd, cool. Though I could do with I I could see Wisconsin uh <laughs>
1: moving to that. I, I wouldn't I, mind. I, I wouldn't mind that at all either. It would be a, a, a great change for the landscape. Gambling is illegal in Hawaii. Hmm. That one I didn't know. Even bingo. You can't even, can't even do some, some, uh, some bingo. It's Not even bingo at the church? There's some profit in it, then nope.
0: It's a no-go in Hawaii. It's a no-go. Grandma will end up in the clink. <laughs> oh, the, the interesting thing is uh, the island is continually growing. The Mm -hmm. volcano there that's been erupting. Did you read this? How many years that volcano has been erupting? Have you found that yet on your Google search? Oh, uh,
1: I'm sure I came across it, but go ahead and run it by me.
0: 600,000 years it's been erupting continuously. Wow. Put it in Guinness. Now that, I I almost feel like I need to reread that. (laughs) 600,000 years continually erupting? Hawaii has 10 of the world's 14 climate
1: zones. And I guess I can you can see about that, it. yeah. Yeah, you got uh, top of the mountain
0: is, mm-hmm. you know, and then the, of course the different all the way
1: down, yeah, yeah. All beaches in are public in Hawaii. That's you nice. Have, yeah, that's I didn't know that. That's really cool. There must be public access to to all beaches. You can't obstruct it from the public, otherwise oh, you nice. face a hefty
0: fine. You know, there's so many people that in other cities here are not just people but businesses that have purchased land and then they claim the beach that. Limits the general public from being able to see some of this stuff. So that's that's cool that they do it that way, I think. Mm-hmm.
1: Hawaii is the only U.S. state that produces coffee. That makes sense. You don't really hear about coffee coming from North Dakota. <laughs> or, <laughs> right. Or anywhere south, for that matter. But And speaking of south, Hawaii is actually the furthest south of the United States. Oh, ah, furthest
0: Flo- point south in the yeah. entire Florida likes United their, States. Yeah, yeah, Florida claims the, the lower West. 48 correct mm-hmm. cuz i know there's a big marker i think down there isn't there yeah yeah but hawaii
1: is actually uh,
0: considerably further interesting stuff well and again taylor here it'll be it'll be fun to talk to him because this plantation pineapple is a big crop down there and he's got local farmers that he he buys from and mm-hmm. they actually have a fish that is locally sustained because you got to imagine that's one of the bigger foods that's eaten around there and yeah. you certainly don't want to be bringing that in and you can fish it kanpachi kanpachi is the the name of the fish i believe yeah that they source and sir he serves at his restaurant so that's pretty cool i hope we'll hear about that and also again all the livestock and produce and things that are grown locally as well so it'll be interesting to talk to him and hear about all that stuff yeah yeah they say that the locals on the island i talked to one of our reps our sales reps down there and he said that uh, a lot of the locals work two jobs because the cost of living is high. Mm. Uh, and a lot of the supplies and things are brought in. People need to work, so they'll, they'll work a couple of jobs. And a lot of the tourist locations and restaurants are the places the locals don't go. And I guess that makes sense. Sure. They're in an area yeah. that was heavy tourism and the locals didn't always frequent the same restaurants and things. And they, he says that's very much the same there. So when the locals find their little lo- place they'd like to go, they kind of keep it quiet and don't let the rest of everyone else in on it or it won't be a little local spot anymore.
1: Right. Right. But yeah, the cost is is just outrageous. You know, stuff that we take for granted, you know, like what does a gallon of milk cost in Wisconsin? Like two thirty nine or something. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere between two and a half and three bucks. And in Oahu, it can be upwards of eight ninety nine a gallon.
0: Oh, wow. And that's, that's just crazy, And I'll bet that's California milk.
1: Yeah,
0: California milk. Only because we're from Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it, I'm sure it's good milk. <laughs> well, I'll bet that's all gone down as well, because if you think about Hawaii, their economy is really tourism-based, and the tourists are not coming. Mm-hmm. Our friend there, Peter Powell, the rep, um, told me that at the high point. Twenty planes a day from the U.S. would arrive in Hawaii. Wow! And now he's saying it's like you know a couple hundred people a day. That's it. Jeez! Because they have to quarantine, and it's just not yeah. worth it to go there on a vacation, of course. So, and if you're on business travel, you still have to quarantine. So yeah. it just they're they're not seeing the tourism. Um, it's it's like everywhere else, but it's even more because Hawaii was so dependent on tourism. Yeah. Well,
1: and they they started out at the beginning of of the pandemic and being applauded for their efforts and they were doing a really good job and then just seemingly out of nowhere recently they've just spiked and so they've had to take new measures to to mitigate that but when almost your entire economy is based upon tourism it's just devastating
0: all right well now that we have some interesting hawaiian history i think it's uh, maybe that time we should bring on our guest and uh, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm really interested to, to hear from our chef today. He's he's a young guy that just won again that Chef of the Year for the Ipano Chef of the Year award, and he's from the Millhouse Restaurant and Bar on Maui. So, chef, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here today.
0: Oh, Our pleasure, our pleasure. We've uh, been talking about Hawaii and the great island there, and just everything that uh, kind of unique about about Hawaii and things we didn't know. But, um, and, and as I said earlier, congratulations on winning the chef of the year award. What a great accomplishment. And that was just recently, right?
2: Yeah. That that was actually, uh, that happened, uh, like the second week we were shut down at COVID. So, you know, it's a huge honor and I actually had a moment to take it in instead of going straight back into the restaurant. So it was a different, <laughs> it was a different type of award than we're we're all normally used to. <laughs>
0: That's something pretty special, and you found that out again virtually. They must have had, like a virtual awards night or something.
2: Yeah, it was the first uh, YouTube iPono Awards. So, like normally, it's a uh, you know there's like a themed dinner. So this year it was Hunger Games. So everyone would dress up like a Hunger Games themed outfit, and and it's supported by the Maui Culinary Academy. And, oh, please uh,
1: tell me you were Katniss.
2: I you know what I didn't I didn't dress up because at the uh, time at the time I had never seen the Hunger Games, and uh, so. I had no idea what it was like, you know, everyone was like, it's like Harry Potter. And I was like, "Uh, okay, (laughs) I don't know what that means, but...
1: You said it was like Harry Potter, huh? Yeah,
3: you know,
2: and and then I watched it and I was like, this is nothing like Harry Potter. (laughs) But it's actually really cool because it gives, uh, so a lot of the uh, culinary students get to cook the dinner with the chefs and then the kids who are in their second semester get to serve the food with a lot of, so you get great experience front and back of the house and events coordinating and stuff like that. And so... I think that was the hardest part for it virtually is you don't get to like, you know, like what semester are you in? Like, what are you interested in? Like, that was kind of like one of the hardest parts besides Mm. like, you know, being a part of it and and winning chef of the year. Like, you know, I'm only I just turned I'm about to turn 29 this month and uh, I went to that culinary school and it, it would have been really cool, I think, to like see some of the students and be like, you know, like I I went to culinary school here, too. I thought that would have been cool, but you know, once this is all over, I'm sure we'll we'll get to do an award ceremony or something. Yeah.
1: Right. What's the criteria for judging? How do they, how do they do that? How do they make their decisions?
2: So, um, there's, uh, there's a lot of different, you know, they have like, you know, um, best service, best business lunch, uh, best farm to table, most sustainable. They have like all these different awards that, uh, the community votes on, but the, uh, the chef of the year award is voted by your peers. So people send in letters of recommendations, other chefs, and they vote you in. And so it was actually really humbling for me because a lot of people wrote in for me. And I'm like, I was the, you know, voted the youngest chef of the year in history. And that was really right. cool for me because I always have been the kid in the kitchen. And, and uh, it's, it's very interesting for people that I respect a lot to recognize me in that, um, that way. And that was really cool for me.
0: Oh well, that is that's uh I was going to ask you that how you felt about being the youngest and I mean, it should it's a tremendous honor and, and how was that transition though for you like you were the were you a sous chef or something in the kitchen before you were promoted to the executive chef? Yep. I was, yeah. And so then that transition that day when cuz you like you said you're you're 28 years old right now and mm-hmm. so when you were named executive chef you were how old? 25. 25. So, yeah. you know, how, how'd that transition go from being like one of the guys in the kitchen and, you know, not the executive chef, but then now you are the boss and you're only 25 years old. So how did that, how was that for you?
2: It was pretty interesting. You know, like the, I've always kind of been an ask, you know, I was a sous chef at, um, just at like 21 years old. And so it's kind of, I've always kind of had, I think that was like just as hard if not, cause like, all, like I was working with chefs that were like you know, four to two years old who've worked for like all these amazing people, all this kind of stuff. And I always kind of try to keep like a humble, open mindset and, and learn from everyone, not just like, okay, I'm the boss now. And like, you got to listen to me. It was like, you know, like, Hey, what, what can I do better as a boss? Like, how can I, how can I communicate this better? And, uh, my biggest fear was like, I didn't want to become a chef who knew it all overnight. And so I tried to like, keep my head down and be like, I'm going to be that boss that like everyone always wanted who was like, I can come to him with anything, you know, we can taste this dish. And he'll be like, this is bad. He won't be like, no, it's good. He'll be like, yeah, you're right. This is, this is not taste good. Or like, I always wanted to have like that respect from everyone. And my biggest fear was that I wouldn't fall into, you know, cause like no one starts out that way. Everyone like becomes a certain way over time and not saying that every chef is like that, but like my goal was always to, pursue the path of excellence in anything that I do. And, and uh, it was scary for sure. It was scary, but for me, when I have a fear of something or I'm scared of something, the only thing I do, like my only move is to push forward and, and just go for it. You know, there's nothing traveled, nothing gained is my, is my thing.
0: Good way to look at it. And the other thing is I always think if someone else did it, why can't I, right? Yeah. Someone else did it. Why can't I?
2: Everyone started where we are now or, you know,
0: yeah, exactly, exactly. Speaking of people that you, you learned from and worked under, you actually spent some time at the French Laundry under Thomas Keller. Is that right?
2: I did not uh, work oh. directly for Thomas Keller. I actually worked for a chef. His name was Jonathan Mizukami, and he was a chef for Thomas Keller. Okay. Which, uh, which I you know, I love Thomas Keller. I've always uh, idolized him, and he was great. And uh, when I got to work for Jonathan Mizukami, it was like, you know, he – he definitely was that guy who was that chef. Like you could tell he was just so focused and like everything was about refinement and such a team player. And I learned so much amazing things from him. I mean, he working with him definitely made me want to be better and made me look at food and the way I run a team and how I act in a completely different way. I mean, the guy is just a master of his craft. Amazing.
0: You know, that and Keller, I know there's a lot of, stories about him and whatnot, but his kitchens and, and the way he runs his kitchen is just so unique. Is, is the chef that you work for very much like that? Did he pick that up from Keller, do you think? Or?
2: Absolutely. I mean, he the way he ran his brigade, I mean, the way he tre- checked in produce, the way he talked about food, the way that, you know, it's amazing when you work in a kitchen where there's not a lot of talking and just crazy things get done. And people look at this plate of food that comes out and they're like, wow, that's amazing. And it's like, there's not a lot of talking going on because everybody knows exactly what they need to do, how they need to do it, what the standard is. And it's like the communication is so good. It's like no one really needs to say anything to each other. It's it's a quiet kitchen with like really positive people and and mm-hmm. they all work just in uniformity towards the same goal. It's, it, it was it's the best experience I've had in my life in the kitchen for sure.
0: So from that, do you have any things that you look in, in your kitchen that you brought in there, any pet peeves that you... Or things that you've developed in your time that you brought in your kitchen that are things that make you make sure they're done a certain way that you have?
2: Yeah, you know, it's it's funny, like uh, terminology is definitely a big one that I took, you know, and, and uh, organization for sure. Just from, from how a dish is created to how a dish is ordered, or, um, sorry, produce is ordered you know, menus, prep sheets, things like that. Like I, I had a way of doing them that I felt was really, really efficient. And then you go and work with that guy and you're like, wow, that is efficiency. And hmm. and uh, I learned a lot of those kind of things from him. And just, you know, another thing that he did really well is how he communicated things to people when they weren't doing something that was the best. He He inspired people to want to do things better. Like, one of the chefs that I was working with, he was a chef de partie, and we were taking out the trash one night. And it was so funny because we were, like, exhausted. And uh, so we had this massive trash can, right? We took everyone's trash, and then we were like, we're going to take this giant Santa trash bag out and throw it over here. And it was uh, Christmas or something like It was a holiday. And this trash dumpster was overfilled with every restaurant next to our restaurant's trash. And it had gotten to the point where they started putting the trash next to the trash can you know, they, there's no room in the, in the, in the bin. And so I like, you know, I'm like a young buck. I'm like, this is heavy. And I threw it. And then the chef partie Brent was like, nah, man, we got to walk into that trash can. And I was like, but that's like half a block away. And he was like, we got to do what, what chef would do. He would do the right thing, you know? And so we ended up walking all the trash over there. And that was like one of my last nights working there. And, and I was like, God damn, like, to the trash this guy got to his cooks, you know, like and, and, <laughs> and uh, I always thought like that was really inspiring. Like he he made a culture in his kitchen where yeah. people wanted to do everything better, not just make good food. Like they wanted to do every aspect of what their job was better. And that's something that I've always put, tried to go towards.
1: Yeah, it all comes from the example
0: that's being set forth with the leadership. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost like you felt chef was watching you and saw you not take the trash over there and you'd it would have been disappointing. Right. And that you weren't having it. You're going to do it the right way, even though yeah. he wasn't there. Yep. Yeah, and
1: you need he, the little, the little elastic bands that say, you know, what would chef do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he he would probably, he would probably know, like,
2: how, you know, I imagine like the way that would have happened if we would just dump it there, we would have walked in and like, The door would have opened, he would have been standing there, we'd make eye contact with them, and then we'd like look at the ground and walk back and like do it anyways.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So do you have anything like a pet peeve that you have or where things have to be a certain
1: maybe a little OCD
0: or yeah, or particular, but (laughs) I've got one that I was gonna like on a buffet. I'm I'm everyone around here when they set up a buffet line, they'll put like the silverware and the napkins and everything on the front end of it. And to me, that's my big pet peeve. It all should go in the back because you don't need it in the front end. Why carry it, right? So that's like the thing that I just always bring up whenever I'm in those situations. So do you have anything like that where you just – that's your pet peeve that you're going to drive?
2: I I mean, to me, because I'm so like pet peeve, it all seems normal, I guess. Like if you were (laughs) to ask some of my sous chefs or something, they'd probably be like everything he does is weird. But, uh, (laughs) you know, one of the things that I push towards is uh, like – you're your own franchise, so like how you present yourself is something that's really important to me and uh, um, like I, I wasn't always the head chef or whatever, but you know I made sure that my shoes were clean and my apron was presentable and that my whites were ironed and and that was something that I always thought like one day I'm gonna ask, be asked to go into that dining room so I better start training these habits. and uh, that's something that I'm kind of OCD about. And, and and that's not to say that I wasn't that that line cook with like the white apron and the murder stains all over it at some point i was definitely i was definitely <laughs> that guy <laughs> at yeah. some point but uh you know i ha- i have weird pet peeves about you know um how you present yourself and uh I also have weird pet peeves about how I break down service so like you know before before we uh we do floors we do the countertops and before we do you know, mopping, we have to sweep, like no one breaks their station down and gets their spots. Like we all have to do it in unison, like a symphony and work together. And I think that's definitely something that when people come to work for me the first time, they have a hard time with, or it's like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all in hot. I'm going, it's like, no way. Like you got, you got some stuff to do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So if things aren't going your way in the kitchen, Mm -hmm. do you have any tells? Like people who look and they go, "Uh Oh, chef's not happy how do people know if things aren't going right in the kitchen
2: um i'm told to have the look um yeah. the in the eyes the it's a uh, you know it's a stare but uh i'm 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 not to say that i'm a yeller but i'm very i i don't want to say i'm vocal cuz that comes off negative i'm a uh, i communicate i communicate and i i actually pull people aside the second something's not doing good and you know like to me, being in a restaurant and having cooks work for you is about surrounding yourself with people who are better than you, or who are work really hard, or who are really driven. And so, at any point, just like in any relationship, you should be able to approach them and be like, "Look, this is what's happening. What's going through your head right now?" And uh, so, like, the walk up to it, I think, is the biggest tell for a lot of my cooks. Like, they <laughs> they can they're like, "Oh, that's a." That's a
3: skip,
0: like a speedy walk. <laughs> <laughs> it's a serious
1: walk there.
0: <laughs> they know. Yeah. They know. I think everyone's got something they broadcast when things aren't going right or you've got an emotion or something, right? So that's, yeah. that's your eyes, your your look. But the way you handle it beyond that point is where you're, you're not going to be that old school chef that we all heard about in the years past where they throw things literally in the kitchen like a pan or a yep. piece of meat or whatever it is, right? <laughs>
2: I, you know, and I, I actually like that was something you know when I was talking about being the leader that other people always wanted. I, I am a advocate for you have to burn it to learn it, and like, you know, you have to make it a acceptable place to fail for people to want to be better. You know, if you if you condition people to know that if they mess up, they're going to get affected a certain way, as opposed to hey, let me show you how to do it, or this is a better way, or, you know, how are they going to come to me with some sort of advice? They're not going to show me anything because it's just going to be met with aggression and chaos, you know, I I push towards, you know, like, hey, that's okay that you didn't do it, like, why didn't it work well? And it'd be like, well, like, I threw in my eggs when the water was too hot and it scrambled my eggs. It's like, okay, so you know how to not do it the next time, good job, you know, it's like, how do how do we figure out a process as opposed to, like, destroying this person who's just trying something they've never done before, you know, and. And I like to, when I'm, when a recipe's there, I make it with them and then they make it while I help them and then they make it alone and show me how it goes. And I'm like, all right, you got it. But like, if it's not happening, it's like, that's, that's on me. You know, that it's, it's like uh, Mr. Miyagi says, it's not in bad students, it's a bad teacher, you know, <laughs> you, you have to work with them some more.
1: Yeah. Speaking on development of, of recipes and, and meals and stuff. Can you go a little bit further into detail on on how you do that? You uh, alluded to it was kind of a group process. Or do you come up with a lot of stuff yourself? And w- where's inspiration coming from? What does that whole process look like?
2: So I start with like reverse engineering a dish. Like a lot of people will be like, start out with a picture and be like, I want to make this or make it look like this. I am the opposite where... You know, we get the harvest report from our farmers and whatnot, and we've been tasting them, and, and while they're dropping off produce, like, they're telling us, like, I'm growing these peppers, or I'm growing this, and and they're really excited about these things. So I kind of, like, get the wheels going in my head while they're talking to me. And uh, so we get the harvest report, and my chefs and I look at the what's coming out, and then we say, like, oh, like, these would go really, really good together with this. And I have dishes on my menus that completely – showcase what I like to call the gem items. So it could be something that is a carrot or a radish that just grows year round. And that's the moneymaker for the farmer. And I think that that's really, really important because a lot of people want stuff that's like peak season delicious. And that's great, but the farmers don't have a lot of it. You know, that's, they need, they need the workhorse to sell too. And so things like eggplant, turnips, radishes, carrots, beets, those are things that I like to keep on the menu at all times so that they have something generating a lot of money and then they have something generating some money, but they're really interested in it. Like I want to support their growth too. And uh, so what we like to do is we take those items and then we think about, you know, what we could pair them with or which dish needs to be changed because we change out different dishes seasonally. And so it's like, oh, we're going to need a salad or we're going to need a pair for the fish or we need a pair for the beef. And then it'd be like, oh, that'd be really cool with this. And then, the products come in and then it'd be like, Oh, you know what? This isn't like a nice puree kind of thing. So what can we do with this? So I have like the number one concept and the number two concept for this item. And then at the end of it, I'm like, all right, like what are the elements of this dish? You know, where is the salt? Where is the acid? And then all of our chefs come together and we make it and it, it could probably, it could still change a million different ways. Cause then we taste it and we're like, Hey, you know, it'd be really good with that. <laughs> and then it, it just, it completely builds. So it's like, we build these, these blocks and then we break them down and then we refine them. And sometimes they come up way too refined. And then we're, and then I ask myself before we put on the menu, does this match the demographic I'm trying to meet? Does it match the brand we're doing? Cause you know, as, as chefs, I'm, I'm an avid reader. Sometimes I'm reading books and I'm like, Oh, I really want to make that. And then I look at it and I'm like, I made something similar to it. And I'm like, but this isn't really me. And this isn't really what people here are trying to eat or going out for. And so then I, you know, I, There's just a million different things. But at the end of the day, I tell myself it has to be, you know, relatable. It has to be coming from a source that I really, really appreciate and I support. And it has to be something that's going to push the bar of my team and help them grow as much as me. And then, and then that's, that's the process.
1: How long, how long does that usually take?
2: Um, sometimes months, you know, I, I think as chefs as you guys can relate is like, you have like those things in your back pockets that, you know, are going to be really, really good with certain items, you know, you have your repertoire, but, um, a lot of the times, you know, those aren't the things that you're, you're trying and you're, you know, you're like really, pa- you know, I'm really passionate about whole animal and and things like that. And you're, you know, I think it's like the bane of every chef's existence to try and make offals marketable <laughs> to people, you know, or <laughs> it's like, how do, how do I get this going? Like, you guys are so cool. And like, the average person is like, I don't, I don't want to eat that.
3: And,
2: <laughs> and so, you know, rather than like, force a triangle through a square, I, you know, that process is a little bit easier, because I'm not trying to do stuff like that anymore. You know, whereas years and years ago, I used to try and do that. <laughs> yeah, so like, I, I save time by, by not making those mistakes anymore. You know, it's, a server only has so much time to be at the table and explain a dish. And I feel like you just need a lot of time to do those kind of things. And so hmm. to make it easy on the server, they have to understand it easy. You know, and, and as chefs, we spend hours and hours with our servers and at ed- food education and food classes. And if they don't get it after that four hour class, how are they gonna communicate it to four minutes with the with the client? And so okay. I I skip those those steps. By before I put a dish up or even start the process of it, I'm not even going to try and do anything weird. I'm you know I'm going to make
3: food,
0: food, (laughs) food. food. (laughs) So we're talking about the the fact that you you're locally sustainable, you're locally sourced and sustainable, and and the whole restaurant there. We haven't talked really much about it yet. Is it's a very unique location, right? It's on the side of a mountain. It's not a in downtown type it is a destination you are going there for that purpose and it's an old plantation old sugar king plantation mm-hmm. is that right and yep. and the, there's a, many farms around it now that supply your produce and uh, even your your meat I, I, some of the farmers you get some of your beef and uh lamb I think and pork and things from from the farmers mm-hmm. so how how is that and, and is that an initiative that is something you brought to the to the restaurant or is that something the restaurant's always had there, because so I know food on Hawaii is is expensive, right? Mm-hmm. Especially things that are brought in.
2: Oh yeah, it's it's kind of always been our mission statement at Maui Tropical Plantation to support small farms and, and local farmers. Um, I think what I bring to that um, aspect is that I've I'm from Hawaii originally, so I grew up with a lot of the farmers and a lot of their children, and you know, like I've you know worked some of the farms. I've constantly frequent there um, when I was doing pop-up dinners and things like that or private chef work and uh, you know it's tough but it's always something that I've pursued because Hawaii has so much things brought in. I think that's important a lot for for um, what you're doing. It's, It's about supporting the community as well as the restaurant and that actually when you live in a small population of people, you know, like an Island that encourages people to come because they say things like, Oh yeah, he's got like uncle Paul's pork or he's got Jerry's lettuce in there. It's kind of cool. You know, so they, they support their friends and family too. And I feel like that's a good initiative to have. And and, uh, like for, and especially too, for things that um, people, you know, like fish oversourcing is huge in Hawaii because everyone comes to Hawaii for fish. And so, I make it a point to use our farm-raised Kampachi from the big island, which doesn't affect our wild fish and destroy that fish culture because, you know, we, we go through 80 portions of fish on average a day at the millhouse. So, you know, and it's a, it's a five ounce portion. So we would be crushing local like wild fish, you know, so I choose to support a, a farm-raised local fish instead.
1: What are some of the other fish that you like to feature?
2: We have a bunch, you know, like I definitely, um, uh, there's, like, you know, we have mahi, which is, um, mm. Dorado, you know, we have, uh, we have swordfish here, marlin, things like that. Um, bottom fish is definitely my favorite. And, uh, you know, I like big sport fish too, but with the bottom fish, the reason I like it is because you get, you know, you get the whole baggage with it. You get to break the fish down. You get to use the bones. When you have sport fish, it's just so much more work. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it's like you're trying to get it for servicing going. It's like breaking down five six pound fish is so much easier than you know um everyone clear this table i have this massive <laughs> this massive tuna to break down and then you know i'm like taking up all this area in the fridge with fish because i don't want to let it sit out and get too warm in the kitchen whereas like a small fish i can break it down on a nice bath and uh let it be cool and so i, I typically favor the bottom fish more and uh what's what's cool about that is I feel like there's a lot of varieties in Hawaii that people don't get to try in a lot of different places. I mean, you get to try tuna and swordfish in a lot of places, but the bottom fish is what a lot of people ask for when they come here. It's the uh, opaka um Uku is one of my favorite, um, you know, which is like we have red snapper, short tail, um, sea bass, you know, things like that. We just have, we just call them different things in Hawaii.
0: Oh, okay. So, and also a smaller fish keep it fresh, right? You break it down, you use it, that's fresh versus a bigger fish that you're going to have for days, right? Laying around. Yeah. I know when I I was telling Justin uh, one of the other days, and when I worked in Arizona in the middle of the desert, we had a guy come to my restaurant and he said his tuna was just okay and uh so i was apologizing and everything and i found out that he was from hawaii i'm thinking you came to the desert to order tuna when you're from hawaii why would <laughs> it just doesn't make sense so yeah why are like, you doing this like to me <laughs> right like, thank you exactly how i felt like why are you doing this to me exactly You're like
2: in arizona this is the best okay <laughs> yeah, i
0: said we flew it in fresh and it was the best and he said it wasn't so just an emphasis on how much fresher fish is actually at the source <laughs> i mean <the> desert
2: <laughs> hawaii is one of those places where you're driving down the highway and there's a guy with a cardboard sign that says like fresh tuna and you you pull over you're like what and then you're like yeah. hey what's going on he's like i'll give it to you for two bucks a pound and you know i mean i, I don't use that in the restaurant but for my home life i'm like hell yeah what's yeah up? right
1: right How two you doing? bucks a <laughs> pound. Um, Jeez.
2: because they just caught, so, they caught so much and they're trying to get
1: rid of it before it goes bad you know it's yeah like, what's up I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, that's, you... that's a guy I would like to get to know.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so, how do you buy like your beef and pork and lamb and things from the farmers? Do you break that down yourself? Do you you don't butcher from the, the beginning, right? You they they do the slaughter and then you take primals from them, or how do you?
2: So different different uh so like the hogs we we have a company that slaughters them. It's a local company, and then they saw it in half for us, and then we break it down from there. So it comes. Okay. It comes gutted and head off and then split in half. And then I break it down from there.
0: Oh, the, you did that. Wow.
2: yeah. The steers, we used to do whole a lot, but, um, as we, as we stopped doing 50 covers and started doing a thousand, I just didn't have the refrigeration to do whole steers as much. So I would just get those in primals and then fish is whole shrimps are whole. Um, you know, lamb in the past has been whole pretty much wow. anything that I can do. I try and keep whole, or as close to, to get all the bones and bits and, and trim for sauce work and whatnot. Like I, I sure. really like, I really like the little things that make things good. And, uh, you know, and, and then we take that stuff and we compost it and then give it to the farmers and put it in our own compost program. So it's, you know, comes back to the beginning.
0: Uh, that's a, that's an important, um, I don't know if you'd call it uh tradition or, um, with, with the lays, right? That's uh, in Hawaii, when you get the lay, the tradition is that you're supposed to bring that back. You're not supposed to take it. You're supposed to put it back into the area it was grown in and it's kind of re- returning to the land, right?
2: A lot, you know, it's funny. I just found this out. You know, I've lived in Hawaii my whole life. And uh, my friend, actually, she told me the other day, it's good luck to give it to someone else before you leave where you got it. So uh. that's kind of been my new thing when I get a lay. Is like, hey, here you go. And that makes that person's day too, you know? So I think that that, definitely captures the Aloha spirit is going out of your way to do something nice for someone. And uh, a lot like in Hawaii, a lot of the things is when you take something from the land, it's very similar to native Americans is that's a gift. So you, you know, you say thank you for the gift or you say a prayer before you take the gift, you know, it's, it's very respectful. And so anything that you do, where it's laymaking making or fishing or anything, a lot of people do that here.
0: So do you ever, um, Need a moment in the kitchen where you think to yourself, "I just want to get away from the line for a bit." And like, I I find it just relaxing sometimes. Just go wash dishes. Just go do, wash the dishes and get away from the line. And do you do you do something like that or totally? That, do you ever like, wash dishes? Do you still wash dishes?
2: I still wash dishes. Yeah. I would right. I would be lying if I would saying that this past year it's been hard to hold dishwashers because uh, in the middle of busy season we actually upgraded our dish machine which meant we we were renovating half of it. So like a lot of these people that were our dishwashers were like, this is insane. Like this is so much work. So like a lot of our chefs, it was kind of like, you know, there would be guys on the line who are just getting crushed during the rush and after it'd be like, chef, can I go offline and do dishes? And I was like, I'll go with you.
3: <laughs>
2: like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You just need a break. You just want to go do
0: something mindless for a while, right?
2: Yeah, and, and, and to look at it from the dishwasher's aspect, you know, like I, I had to tell one of them one time, he was like, am I doing a bad job? Like, is that what you are coming over? Like, no, like we just want to hang out with you and like do something for a second to like get into the mindset again. Like you're doing a yep. great job. It's actually we want to be more near you. Like we love you. <laughs>
0: and a lot of Please. times you, as the chef, uh, you, you need to know how the areas of the kitchen work and, and working with those guys elbow to elbow is, is one way to do it, right?
2: And, and it gains a respect, you know, like I'm a, I'm a firm believer in, uh, there's no job too big and there's no job too small And that. We should all understand like my sous chefs, my cooks, everyone knows how to set up the dish machine. Everyone knows how to break down the dish machine. Everyone knows how to bring in cardboard, break down cardboard, put produce away. Like Everyone knows what should be done, how it should be done and the standard of the final product. And I think that that's important and you can't, you can't. You can't supervise a dishwasher unless you know how to be a dishwasher, you know? That's
0: right. Absolutely.
1: It eliminates excuses, too, then, when when stuff yeah. isn't done, you know? It's like, there's no reason. Everyone here knows how to do this. <laughs>
0: Let's yeah. get it done. Yeah, or,
2: or if something happens, you know, like, uh, you know, you have a big commercial dishwasher and... And uh, a line cook walks by and he smells something burning and it's like, hey, the new dish guy forgot to fill up the water and it. it's going to ruin the machine. He walks over and, and shuts the emergency press. It's yeah. Like, you, just, you just saved yourself like five grand in repairs. It's like, good on him, you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With as much as you work outside, you said you, you you work so much that you don't have a lot of time. On personal side, That's a, that's one area chefs and people in the restaurant industry, I guess in general, sometimes suffer in relationships. And how do you how do you approach that? You're a young guy yet? And and how do you, before you get to be blink an eye and you're going to be 60 and life yep. goes by?
2: I'm, I'm very fortunate that my girlfriend actually uh, used to be a chef in California. And so she's very aware of the lifestyle, you know, um, she's actually an events or she was an events coordinator before we all got laid off due to COVID. So she works pretty long hours too. But, um, she's definitely a huge supporter of how my brain operates, you know, like when I get Mm -hmm. home, I'm either on YouTube or reading a book for half an hour and then we usually talk shop and hang out. And she, she's just very aware of like how much work goes into our industry. And so I think that's really important when you find someone, you, you communicate to them. Like a lot of, a lot of girlfriends I've had in the past, I've tried to make it cool. Like, yeah, like I work in a kitchen, but like, I get a lot of time off and like, you try and put up like the fantasy world. Whereas like in the end you're like, do you really want to be in a relationship with me? Like I work like some, sometimes I work 10 hours and then, but like more average, it's like 14 to 16 and they're like, yeah, I can do it. It's like, but like you do realize that like, I'm not that guy, right? (laughs) (laughs) I I have to work a lot to get to the point where I get to take vacation.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So do you have that decompression time? Like immediately after work, do you have to like, create that buffer between home life and then work
2: the past like four years. I've done a lot of audible, which is awesome. Uh. And, and the drive home listening to someone, you know, you can't, you can't think and hear things while you're listening to a story. And, uh, you know, it's not like, like, I'm sure you guys like are going to sleep. Like, did I turn the fryer off? Did I order fish? Like, did I close the walk in doors? Like invading you just when you start to get tired and want to go to sleep. Cause like, <laughs> you know, it's like the, uh, yep you're so tired all day. And then the second you get in bed, you're just instantly not tired anymore. And then the anxiety starts breaking into you. And <laughs> a great way for me to defeat that would be to have someone else just overpower my brain power and tell me stories through audible till I go to sleep. And that actually really helps a lot. And, uh, you know, you can't do anything but focus on that, that author reading you a book. And I tell it to all my friends, like who are, just taking chef's positions or moving up or anything, I'm like, dude, you should download Audible, it's awesome. Like it helps me out. And if you don't have that breakdown period, you know, you're you a ticking time bomb, you're gonna explode at some point. But like being in the head of someone else and, and like venting in quotations, I would say, is definitely something that I try to do a lot for decompression.
0: Oh, that's all really good advice because our industry suffers from burnout, it suffers. You know, There's people that uh, shut their brains down other ways. Mm-hmm be it drugs or alcohol or other things and it's too bad but that's that sounds like really good advice just that uh go on a story and have someone put your mind in a different place that way versus the way other people seem to do it our industry as you know is just so many people go down the wrong paths and they burn themselves out and they don't last and it's a killer it can really be yep. disruptive
2: i mean yeah. we're ba- we're basically big kids at that point you know like we're all Hopped up on sugar and candy running around all day screaming, and then uh we get home and we need that story to tuck us in at bed. You
0: know? Yeah. good way to put it. Very good. Very good way to put it. So one other thing I wanted to just uh touch on at the restaurant is you did the uh, chef's table on Saturday evenings. That was that was something new. You put the menu away and you did a chef's table. Can you just talk about how you how you approach that and um you know everything mm-hmm. about it at the restaurant with the guests, I understand we're able to actually come in the kitchen or how did that work?
2: So on top of having the lunch and dinner restaurant that we do on Saturdays, we actually have a secondary commercial kitchen outside. And so we run, it's actually even Mm. scarier because Mm. you're running regular service while not being there. So you have to have like really, really good chefs that you know support running the kitchen while you're out there. And so then we have this separate venue uh, on property. And we do a six course tasting menu and it's an open kitchen. So people can come behind and, and take selfies with you while you're searing a piece of steak or ask you questions. It's, it's, you know, I always say that like, you know, this isn't a normal dining experience where the magic happens behind doors. It's happening in front of you and you can ask me questions. Like I want you to feel like you're at a barbecue and you can just come and talk to me and, and you get to see how foods cooked, prepared, executed, you know, what the inspiration for it was, all that kind of stuff. And a lot of people come down and and uh, the other cool thing about it is it's community dining. So you have six tops and eight tops of people you've never met. And so it's kind of like you have your your spouse or your, your date or friend that you've brought and you're meeting new people, networking, and you're having a meal with them that's not necessarily a, a normal closed kitchen. It's very entertaining and alive.
1: So for your staff, do you do any type of... Uh... Performance or media training or, or stuff to let them know that hey you're on display and uh, you you need to uh bring the charisma you need to bring a little uh showbiz with it. I think
2: I think you know that's a funny question is I think to work with me you have to be a certain level of like charismatic or like to keep up with my energy and like <laughs> as as you know like the characters in the kitchen you can make a movie out of easy, you know, like that oh, yeah? scene, in like that scene in Ratatouille where they're going around and talking about everyone's background and the guy killed the guy with his thumb or he's part of the resistance, you know, yeah. <laughs> you, have, you know, the, the culinary industry is a gold mine for characters. And most of the time sure it's is. kind of like, it's kind of like, before service, it's like, just don't be weird. Like, you can be a little weird, but don't, don't be weird weird.
1: <laughs> don't be too weird. <laughs>
2: and 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 usually they tell it to me, so. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that, that chef's table experience, well, that must be actually a lot of fun to be involved with the, the, your chefs, your cooks that work with you and the staff even, right? Just more of a relaxed atmosphere, right? Just almost like your backyard, I would imagine, right? Is that kind yep. of it? Or, yeah,
2: you yeah. know, it, it's... Uh... It's It it can get a little crazy, you know, it, it, it at the peak of it, we were doing 65 people and that's six courses, you know, so it's 65 plates times six, which gets kind of crazy for everything. So, you know, and there's no like heat lamps or anything like that. So you're, everything's last, you know, all minute cooked and sliced onto the steak and sent out to the table and the chefs run the food at the table too. I forgot to mention that. So every oh. table, you know, you have, we have uh, four servers and so the chef comes to the table and will explain the course and, you know, like be like, Hey, this is our uh, amuse bouche. It's meant to wake your palate up. Please eat it in one bite. And you know, it's made from this, this, and this, and we are showcasing high acidity and a little bit of tartness and sweetness because this is going to be a really rich first course or something like that, you know, or, and so you kind of get that connection with the chef and then a lot of people, you know, it, it starts at the same way as a chef brings you your food at the beginning and at the end he's thanking you and, you know, they want to take pictures or she, actually most of the, most of my sous chefs are, are girls. And so they, they run a tight ship with me. Like their job usually at chef's stables is to keep me in line. <laughs> they're the best chefs that I know, you know, like they, you know, I, I, I'm an advocate for chefs are chefs. There's no male or female chefs, you know, they're just chefs. And, uh, one of the thing that, the only thing that we get a lot with them is like a lot of people always say like, Oh, what do you do here? And like, you're a cook here. And and she's like, no, I'm a chef here. And I'm like, she, she is a chef here. She crushes it. So this is her dish, you know? And it's cool to, for me to kind of give them that recognition firsthand. And I think it's great for them to hear me say it too, to a guest. Cause usually it's me in the diner in the dining room and everyone usually thinks it's, Oh, it's all him. But it's like, no, like there's a cook who made this special or, Another chef, or you know, a dishwasher inspired this, and they don't get to hear yeah. me say those things. So I think it's a great way for them to hear it.
1: How does your talent pool work? Are you drawing from local, or are you bringing stuff uh, a lot of people over from the mainland? Or a lot. So
2: I have um, some chefs from the mainland, um, but a lot of them actually started from dishwashers, and we just conditioned them. One mm-hmm. of the one of the issues that we have in Hawaii with, for lack of a better term, transplant cooks, is None of them really like understand. I mean, and this is generalizing, you know, I'm not saying that all people are, but when they move to Maui, they think it's going to be like, I'm going to be surfing every day and it's going to be a sunset and a rainbow every afternoon. And then they, they have to like work really hard to find a house they can afford. And, you know, some of them have to get a couple of jobs because, you know, the restaurants cash in, cash out. And so they're spending a lot of their time working. So it can be pretty tough mentally for people who, who want to move to Hawaii for those things. And so what I do a lot of the time is I have a really good re- uh, um, involvement with the culinary school. And so I usually pull from there. And then a lot of dishwashers just get moved up. I, I spend a lot and a lot of time working with people who just want to work. I started out as a dishwasher. And you know, I didn't know what I was going to do, but people were like telling me every day, like, you know, you're not going, you're not going to school or anything right now, so you might as well do stuff that's going to make you more money in the long run, right? So we're moving you to prep cook. And most people don't say no. <laughs> <laughs> wow.
0: We've talked to so many chefs, and and there's there's the two routes. And you, as we said earlier, you knew what you wanted to be early on, and that was the direction you were going to go. And a lot of chefs end up in their careers. Just because of that progression, as you just said, sometimes it's even out of a, a time of need. You're, you're busy. The Whatever. Chef didn't show up, so you're pulling a dishwasher up to, to work part of the line on a busy night. And then from there, they that's just their new job, right? Yeah. kind of how it works.
2: I mean, that's kind of how I got my first uh, exposure to working a service. We had a big buyout, and our head chef had a uh, heart attack, and I knew the menu with him. And he, he he survived it and he did great, you know, but he kinda had like a spell and he passed out. And uh mm. it was kind of like you're up, kid. And I was like, I like I just prep the stuff with him. I don't know, you know, it's like, but you have like the most information, you know, it's like th- like this is my moment, you know. Like, <laughs> like we said before, it. I can do it. I can yeah. do it, right? Yeah, you put know? me in coach. Yeah, put me in yeah. coach, you know. And, but those are those opportunities, it's just, you know, like you put yourself and you work hard and you move up and sometimes with chance you get an opportunity and then chef comes in when he's not supposed to come in the next day after a heart attack and he's like how'd it go and you're like i think i think it went okay
1: (laughs) (laughs) well i was gonna say taylor guys like you kind of annoy me and let me say why (laughs) because you know what you wanted to do at a young age and for me there was lots of things that I liked and then, you know, I would try and then I'd be like, no, oh, that's not for me, not for me. And then, you know, uh, I spent so much of college just trying to figure it out. And then finally, later on in life, I figured out what I was supposed to do and what I really found my passion. But you had that early on. What was that moment like for you when you, you decided like, yep, food service, chef, that's where I'm going to be?
2: So it's actually kind of funny. So like I knew that like I really liked the consistency and like the militant path of cooking. And it was great structure because I was a 17 year old skateboarder that raised hell in my neighborhood. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like the chef would be like, what's going on? And i be like, what do you mean? He's like, Why, what's going on with your knee? And I'm like, Oh, I put skinny jeans over an ice pack so I can work. You know? <laughs> and he's like, you can't be doing that. You know, like you can't be doing that stuff. Uh, and so that it kind of gave me structure. But at the time, my dad really wanted me to go to school for, for, um, to be a paramedic and stuff like that. And so I was kind of doing that for a minute, but, um, it came down to, that's really,
1: really specific. Why did he want you to be a paramedic?
2: Well, my whole, everyone in my family's in the military and I love and respect the military so much. I have so much appreciation for it. And that was kind of like the next closest thing besides being a cop. And I was a skateboarder. So I was like, no way am I going to be a cop? Like, <laughs>
0: yeah. And,
2: yeah. Uh, you know, a oil and water there. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I was like, no way. And, uh, and so I actually had, um, I was in my last semester of like getting the certification, but I was, I always had worked in kitchens to pay for school because my family didn't have money. You know, my dad was a single dad. And so I was driving home one night and, uh, from work. And at the time I was working a fryer station and I had this crazy sous chef. She was just, Oh my God, destructor. Like, you know, like she would just make me cry all the time because I just couldn't not like I would cry because I wasn't good enough. You know, like she made, you know, And she was just so good. And so what I would do is I would go home and I'd watch YouTube and I'd like read online articles about like the stuff I was doing at work and like how to do it better. So like the next day it was like a video game and be like, I did it good, you know? (laughs) And so I had this test coming up for anatomy and it was like insane. And like, we didn't get the cool, Hmm. like whatever you can fit on a flashcard for this test is what you can bring. It was all, (laughs) it was all from memory. And I was like, this sucks. And so it was like at like 9 a.m. The test and I was at home and all I could think about was uh, Jacques Pepin's omelet YouTube video. And so I was like watching it and I was like making an omelet and I was like hungry and I was like breakfast for dinner. And I was like, I wish (laughs) I wish like I could just do something that like I cared about as much as cooking and like something I actually cared to do. And then like literally it was like someone turned on a light and they were like, hello moron. (laughs) (laughs) Like, <laughs>
3: <laughs> so you then, go. you know,
2: nine o'clock hits, my instructor's texting me, like, you coming in and I was like, no way. And then the next day I dropped out and applied for culinary school. Wow. And it, was, it was, it was probably the scariest like moment in my uh-huh. life. And, you know, I had already been working in the food industry for a couple of years, but it was the best choice that I made. And, uh, it was super scary. <laughs>
0: Wow, what a great story! That was that moment. (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. Good for you for for taking that leap.
2: It was also like crazy because anytime someone would get hurt in the kitchen, they would all come to me. Like this, this guy. (laughs) this guy had had the, you know, the video you watch when you work in the, in like a commercial kitchen, you know, it's like, don't be Johnny and slice your finger off with the meat slicer. They'd be yeah. like, Taylor, what do we do? I'm like, call an ambulance. Why are you asking
1: me? <laughs> I didn't take that.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I
1: dropped out at anatomy. I don't know what that part is. <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay. I think that's a finger.
2: Uh, <laughs> dude, we got we to gotta cut off your whole arm. That's, that's what I got. <laughs> Sear it on the flat top. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> Ch- you know, change your a- socks, drink water.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Put it that's in a- milk.
0: <laughs> that's one thing also I think about uh, chefs is my dad um, – if you couldn't fix it with a chef knife, I mean, he he was going to replace a panel in our front door as a kid with a chef knife. He was at the door, not a hammer, not a declaw, not a claw part of the hammer, a chef's knife. Everything is done with a, a chef's knife. That was that's gangster. Like <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, you, you oh. should make
2: you should make that into like a t-shirt, like bumper stickers, like everything I do, I can do with the chef's knife. Chef like that's knife. the new MacGyver.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah, right. <laughs> Funny though, even around the house here, it's uh, always a, a knife, a paring knife to, uh, whatever. I mean, I'm using a knife, but it's just you're comfortable with that tool in your hand, right?
2: Yeah, it's an extension of your arm. You know, it's kind of right. like that's. I always like that scene, and I don't know if you watched Sweeney Todd with Johnny Depp, where he like comes back from jail and he he's singing the My Friend song with the razor blades, and it's like the extension. My arm's complete. You know, it's uh-huh. kind of like I always I always like to see like. I'd be interested to see after COVID, like the moment you see a lot of chefs like open up their knife rolls again and have that moment, you know, like I, I really look forward to that.
1: Well, chef, I want to know what has been one of your most successful or favorite dishes or meals that you've ever made. Could have been, uh, professionally or when you were little, whatever. Just something that you will always remember and hold dear.
2: It's hard, it's hard to say, you know, so like when I grew up as a kid, my dad worked a lot, so I didn't really cook a lot, but part of, you know, it's interesting during COVID, a lot of downtime has kind of been finding out like what my other, you know, I'm Portuguese, um, you know, Asian. And so it's kind of like, I've always kind of gone towards like Mediterranean flavors and stuff. And, and, uh, one of the things that I've been doing a lot during COVID is exploring a lot of Japanese food Mm. and, um kind of like big points on me is like, you know, we made a okonomiyaki um, during COVID. And that kind of to me was like, one of those moments where I was like, this is pretty cool. Like, this is a dish that like, I felt like I discovered about myself and I could like relate to even though I didn't have a lot of, you know, in, in Hawaii, we have a lot of Japanese food, like it's very, very influenced Japanese, many different cultures. But to me, that was kind of one of those like, You know, every chef has the like, I used to watch my grandma roll pasta when I was two years old. To me, that was kind of like one of those moments when I was eating it. I kind of it made me feel a certain way that like i never felt about making different cultures foods. It was kind of like this is something that I probably should have eaten as a kid that Mm. I'm happy to explore now that, you know, when I have kids someday, I'm going to make it for them. Like it it made me feel at comfort.
1: Oh, That's really cool. That's, That's a great way of putting it, too. Yeah, uh, because that, that, that's such a rare experience to ever have as as an adult. It just mm-hmm. doesn't seem like it happens very often where you can be transported
2: back. Yeah, yep. And, and and you know, it's interesting to, you know, I think as chefs, we're constantly still learning and doing new things. But like to still find those moments and like points of chaos and and when you're feeling at your lowest of lows or your highest of highs, you still might find that. You know, you're chasing that dream. I think that's interesting to find.
1: Yeah. Yep. Okay. By by contrast, now, what was your biggest culinary disaster, or worst thing you've ever you've ever made or been a part of? Oh man! Or one of the worst. Or, or
2: <laughs> I, so like I. It's funny. I always like uh, I've I've ruined so much food, and like I, <laughs> I say like the the path to to success is littered with failure. You know, like you have uh, to. Like I said, you had to burn it to learn it. And that's the only difference between a student and a teacher, I think, is that the teachers failed more times and come back than the student. (laughs) And, uh, man, I had, you know, I I actually, it's funny, like I had moments where, you know, I've cooked where I've just been burnt out or whatever, but I had this one time, it actually just happened recently. It was like the biggest, you know, it was my anniversary, my girlfriend and I were supposed to be in Europe for July, and uh, we couldn't because of COVID, and this was kind of like that dude, you can't screw up moment. And so we had made fresh pasta and we wanted to make Cabernara and I had over seasoned it. And I was like, dude, Oh my God, I'm going to start over. You know? And it's like, but my girlfriend used to be a chef. So she likes salt and I'm like, you know, and so I'm like, I'm just going to add like more like eggs, and thin it out. And then like, she, she's like, how's it coming? And she like tasted off, you know, looks at me and I was like, I got to start over. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, the biggest Epic fail is like, kind of like, it happens yeah, and, you know it's like yeah but like you know it's like it's it's funny like you know they always say don't change the salt but to find like kosher the salt you use in a restaurant and a grocery store is difficult you know it's like it feels different the grits thicker thinner you know there's it, it, just never change the salt in the kitchen is i was saying for a reason
0: it <laughs> is it is You're but, like, to that, that...
2: Was, that was the one that burned the, the
1: worst uh, <laughs> yeah out the anniversary and everything so did you did you start over? Or did you just like order pizza from there?
2: I mean, I made like a really good salad after that, and <laughs> I poured I poured more champagne, and it seemed to kind of work okay. out. Cool, that, that <laughs> fixes a lot, you know. Yeah. And then you know, of course, I do what I always do, and I use my charming personality to make up for all my shortcomings. There you go, so <laughs>
0: <laughs> perfect, Taylor. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time with us here today. It's been it's really been interesting and uh, a pleasure chatting with you. We always like to ask our guests a um at some point in your career or your life there's been some someone something uh, a quote a, a line a phrase that stuck with you that resonates with you um do you have anything like that for us today that you could uh tell us that's something that you live by or inspired mm-hmm.
2: you one one quote that i always thought really dug into me deep was um it came from morpheus in the matrix and nice. uh yeah he he know he also knows kung fu but uh you know, he said uh, there's a difference in knowing a path and walking a path, and I always thought that was really good, you know, like, like what are you trying to accomplish on your journey, you know, and, and if you know it and you walk it, you know, those are two different things, but they're two very similar things, and it depends how you look at the two different things, you know, and I always thought that was worth remembering and, and using throughout my career.
0: Oh, that's great. Most definitely. All right. Well, thank you for that. That's that's an awesome. I'm always impressed by our quotes from our guests. So thank you very much again for that. Anytime. Justin, any closing thoughts from you today? Absolutely.
1: I would like to once again remind everyone out there to please click that subscribe button and never miss another moment with a chef or food service industry professional again. And also while you're at it, Why don't you go ahead and give us a review? We would like to know what you like, what you don't like, how we can improve. And you can give us some topics and ideas
0: for future shows. Perfect. And on that note, again, if they have any ideas, they can reach out to us at volrathfoodservice.com slash the feed. So as I leave every show, I like to just tell everyone, don't worry about the other guy and what they're doing. Just focus on what you do best and no one's going to beat you. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you have a great week ahead. So until next time, take care.